Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Ooh, is that pod on? Welcome to Next Big Hit, Broadway Bullet, Volume 15. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a great episode again this week. We're going to be talking with Patrick Page, who is starring as the Grinch in The Grinch You Stole Christmas on Broadway. We have got that full interview with the Piano Bar creators. You heard a song from them last week. We've got the new musical, Floyd and Clea. We're going to hear a song from that. We're also going to hear a song from other musicals in development, like Wanda's World. And we're going to hear another track from Gauguin, Savage Light. We've got Creation Nation on, playing at Ars Nova. Oh, just a bunch of stuff. I'd like to remind everybody, if you're new to the program, that if you listen to the enhanced feed in iTunes or on your iPod, there are chapters with pictures and stuff, and you can move back and forth between your favorite segments. So spread the word and let people know. Make sure you stay tuned. We've got some fantastic stuff coming up in upcoming weeks. Next week, we're going to be talking to the queen of cabaret, Andrea Marcovici. We're also going to be getting geeky on Spring Awakening. We're going to have a very in-depth series talking about the fantastic new musical that just is opening on Broadway on December 10th. Remember, spread the word about the program to your friends. In the theater community, word of mouth is often the best thing. And the best way we can help get the word out about all these great shows we're talking about is for you to take the time and let your friends know about the great show and take a moment and explain to them what podcasting is and how to use it if they don't know. Also, Please keep those reviews coming on iTunes. If you've got an iTunes account, just click review this show and give us a great review. We love the feedback and seeing what you're thinking. The reviews also affect how often iTunes promotes us, which helps get the word out further. I don't like having to beat the drum on this, but I stopped mentioning it and we stopped getting reviews. So please, if you haven't already, just take a quick moment and give us a short review on iTunes. But we've got a jam-packed show, so let's not waste any time and jump into our first interview. If you've ever actually wandered into a piano bar, I bet you've often thought, my God, these people are more interesting than the characters I see in many shows. And I believe that is indeed the actual concept behind a new musical, so to speak, called Piano Bar. We have the writers, Stephen Cole and Matthew Ward with us. How are you doing? Very well. Great, thanks. Well, I guess to start off, just kind of describe what was the concept behind getting Piano Bar and, and wanting to write this show? Well, actually, the concept came from the producer this time, a man named Joe McGowan. He, uh, it was his idea to do a show about the closing night of a piano bar here in New York. And he approached me, and then I brought Matthew into it, my longtime collaborator from After the Fair and Casper and Merlin's Apprentice and other shows like that. And Matthew is a, a real piano bar person, too. He's really Yes, I've him. worked at uh, Broadway Baby and God Help Us, Marie's Crisis, <laughs> and uh, a couple of other places that have long since closed, much as Floyd's closes. The piano bar actually takes place on the closing night of Floyd's. It's the very last night of Floyd's, and although we don't say it, uh, they're making way for a right aid. Great. And uh, <laughs> they're going to raise the roof, literally. So our show basically is about that 
that kind of excitement and that need to get done whatever it is you didn't get to do all those years you were coming to the piano bar or working at the piano bar on our show it gets said and done and we have these characters as you said we have two waitresses as matt calls them waitrons usually there's one a night but tonight they get to have they're both on the same shift and these are two ladies Dottie and susan who are frequently at odds with each other and tonight they have to share the stage together and they do it very well so there's a little tension there. There's Randy, played by Matthew Ward, who is behind the keyboard. There's our bartender, Johnny, who gets to break out and do a wonderful solo. And also, we, of course, involve the audience totally. There are other characters. We have people, regulars, who are part of our cast. The Del Vecchio is a wonderful old couple who uh, do our 11 o'clock number. And Gypsy, who is our very own mystic and medium and channeler who channels old dead stars, which is a really fun, fun thing for her to do. But we use the audience. We bring up people to play a wonderful name that sitcom tune game. (laughs) Yes. And uh, we also feature each night a different guest star who is an actual cabaret or Broadway celebrity. It really is one of the elements of the show that we will cast the the best talent we can find. Whoever has a book to plug, for example, Marnie Nixon will be one of our guest stars. Yes, I think it's because I dragged her in there. I co-wrote her book. And we also have Judy Garland herself, as portrayed by Tommy Femia. And another one of my stars from one of my shows called Saturday Night at Gross Singers, a woman named Barbara Minkus, who was in the original tour of Funny Girl. So she, these people show up, and they, and they have actually been to Floyd's years ago, and their career started there. And so it becomes a little improv thing, and then they get to do a number. And the, speaking of Floyd's, Floyd's is the name of the piano bar. It's called Floyd's Piano Bar. And Floyd is another character in the show. And much like Carlton the Doorman or... From uh, Rhoda. From yes. Rhoda or a few, uh, speaking of sitcom themes, la, 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 la. Sorry, that's one of Randy Timmerman's <laughs> obsessions. But Floyd only communicates by telephone throughout the show. He was, the whole show was supposed to honor Floyd and, you know, be a farewell. A big surprise. Fa- big surprise, bon voyage kind of evening for him. And we established that he wants no part of it and that he's watching the show from his office like Flo Ziegfeld used to watch his shows. But he, we, we don't see him. He only calls down on the telephone to interfere once in a while. Exactly. <laughs> and at the end of the show, we decide we really do want to bring Floyd up from the audience. And we just pick an audience member and drag him oh, on the stage. Oh, you're not supposed to tell. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> but Spoiler. It's that, that kind of show. <laughs> so if you want to be Floyd. <laughs> Don't, do you get people coming up to you asking you uh, where they can sit to not? <laughs> yes. In, in fact, I have some friends saying, oh, put me somewhere where I don't have to be chosen. But it is actually a non-threatening show because uh, you can sing along or you could not sing along. You could do the little tap dancing with the coins or not do the tap yes. dancing. With For the Name coins. That Sitcom Tune, which is a game show involving the audience, but we have a sign-up before the show. We have a little sort of pre-show warm-up 
that's part of the show where I just come out and I, I, I play a few tunes. There's no real action. It's just while the people are seated and getting their drinks. And among the other activities that happens is our waitrons, Dottie and Susan, go around and collect names of people who actually want to play Name That Sitcom Tune. So no, nobody's name is yes. going to be pulled unless they signed up for it. So exactly. they have only themselves <laughs> to blame. <laughs> exactly. And and, and we, we're, we're taking Polaroid pictures of people. This is a real evening out fun event. But you don't have to participate. You can still just sit back and watch other people make fools of themselves. <laughs> well, there's only a few performances, and we actually played a song of, that you guys wrote for the show last week to help give a little bit of extra plug, even though we're tight on time. But I understand these are we're going to play another song from the show today, and these are the only original songs in the show, correct? Correct. Right. Um, we we The whole concept of the show is that it's real piano bar material, things that you'd hear you know, being done in a piano bar, but we discovered that we just could not have an opening number that really satisfied it. And Steve and I talked from my piano bar experiences and life, like what are the rules of how to behave in a piano bar to explain it to people who just haven't gone, who don't really know what it is. And that that became our the basis of our opening number. And we did discover that we wanted to frame it with a real song because that established piano bar world. Floyd made this list of rules 25 years ago, and we have been upholding them ever since. Because those who know him intimately know that it is never a good idea to do things that Floyd doesn't like. Randy, show them where he slammed the piano lid on your fingers. He did it after hearing my Frank Wildhorn medley. Who wouldn't? So here then are Floyd's do's and don'ts. If you clap your hands and you holler and hoot, that don't bother Floyd. But if you dance on the table in your birthday suit, Floyd will be annoyed. And, and an annoyed Floyd is something to avoid. Cause when Floyd, Floyd gets, gets annoyed, annoyed, your fingers get destroyed. If you gotta think, just think about a drink, that won't bother Floyd. Hey Johnny, Johnny, make me a drink. I want a vodka, orange juice, and tomato juice. Ew, what's that? A screw Mary. If you got some style and want to dress in drag, that won't bother Floyd. But if your shoes are disgusting and don't match your bag, Floyd'll be annoyed. And an annoyed Floyd is something to avoid, cause when Floyd gets annoyed, cops may be deployed. If we have a raid, then none of us gets paid, which won't bother Floyd. But if to sing a song you've made up your mind, Floyd won't be annoyed. But you don't go on until the list is signed. Note the fine print. One, if we deign to allow you to sing it, Floyd, it is imperative that you actually know the words and music to the song of your choice and that the lyrics make sense and approximately rhyme. Two, we can choose to refuse your selection for any reason, not excluding the fact that we hate the fucking song and would rather die to have to hear it even sung one more time. Three, if our esteemed and accomplished pianist does not know the song you want to sing, you had better damn well have the music and in your key, preferably on cardstock or in a loose-leaf book. Four, if at any time during the course of your performance we deem it necessary, we can ask you to cease and desist. In other words, if you suck, we can give you the hook. Get it? Got it. <laughs> 
key change. If we give permission, you can sing along. That don't bother Floyd. But if you don't know the lyrics to the goddamn song, Floyd'll be annoyed. And an annoyed Floyd is something to avoid. Cause when Floyd gets annoyed, he's like a hemorrhoid. If you give him sass, he'll be right up your ass. That's no place for Floyd. <laughs> now for some specifics about what Floyd will or will not tolerate. Floyd hates cats and Phantom of the Op. Floyd loves the dirty words to You're the Top. You're the top. You're the breast of Venus. You're the top. You're King Kong's penis. Enough about me. Floyd likes ditties both romantic and rude. But Floyd don't tolerate attitude. Floyd recommends that you drink all night. But don't pee on the piano. The, the toilet's to the right. right. If a diva enters and you gotta bow down That don't bother Floyd Though you're smoking when you're joking If you really start in token He'll be far from overjoyed Everybody And annoyed Floyd Floyd's something to avoid Cause when Floyd gets annoyed We'll all be unemployed Over tip your waiter And, and then tip the barman later That don't bother Floyd Floyd would like you all to know That he approves of drinking Order up before the show Who cares if we get stinking This joint is jumping It's really jumping Blow the roof with 80 proof I mean this joint is jumping We know this joint is jumping Stand back, this joint is jumping And that don't bother Floyd Don't bother Floyd In the complete show you'll discover that we actually start with some extra verses you never heard to the Fats Waller tune, This Joint is Jumpin'. And in the cut you heard, we actually end it with This Joint is Jumpin'. So, yeah, we, want, we wanted the audience to feel comfortable that they were hearing a song that they might have heard before. And then in the middle of it, we give them our special material. And then the second song of the evening is the uh, Me on Tap number. Yeah, that's what we played last week. Right, which we really, which David Hibbert, tears the place up with in in the show. We knew we needed a second song, and we were looking for a regular normal song, you know, that existed and found nothing we thought was up to what we wanted. We wanted him to have his dream come true. And uh, when we found out he could tap a little, (laughs) we wrote this (laughs) song specially for him. And we have another song. There's one song in the show which people think is an original, and I would certainly love to take credit for it. But the our, our old people, and we mean they're they're really nicely old, brilliant performers. Viola Harris and Jack Drummond. They play the Del Vecchios, and they sing a song called the Bronxville Darby and Joan, which is really written by Noel Coward, and it's a song cut from Sail Away that I discovered. And everyone, even the actors, thought that we wrote it because it's really funny. So we'll take credit, Noel Coward. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing I have to mention for you know listeners who maybe remember you from when we talked with you on your show Night of the Hunt. I have to say that the original lyrics in this versus the the work you did in Night of the Hunter are night and day opposites in terms of going from very dark and threatening, you know, in Night of the Hunter to uh, some very, very humorous lyrics. (laughs) Well, if you're a good lyricist, and I hope I am, you, you write to the situation and the characters. 
And all of my shows are different that way. Night of the Hunter and Saturday Night at Grossing is about Jenny Grossinger and the Catskills couldn't be more different. Or After the Fair from Casper, for Matt and I. Uh, we, we just write to the character and situations. And uh, I can be funny, can't I? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Night of the Hunter is, you know, just a whole different piece. And I'm thrilled thrilled at what that is. But it's always fun to keep alternating. And no one knows I have a style. I have no style. It's the characters. Oh, I know your style oh, yeah, either you way. Do. But then, you know, <laughs> if, I've, I've written many, many things with Steve. And even wh- whether it's a commercial kind of project like we hope Piano Bar is or like our family show Casper or whether it's after the fair, there are things I just know that he has in his lyrics and the craft is always at a very high level, but it's it's the voice of the show. It's the voice of the characters who do it. It's the tone that we're trying to Same thing for. musically, because you would never... Lots of people know after the fair, we have a CD out there, and then they, they don't know this side of Matt, that it's this fun... You know, I, I can write special material with the best of them, so I, which he can. And, and after the fair is more like Night of the Hunter. It's very rich and melodic, and, and it's 1890s England, so it's very different. So we, we do jump like that. Yes. <laughs> so now, I understand, this is the time we air this. There's only one night left to catch yes. the show on the 30th? The 30th, and that's when Barbara Minkus will be there uh, as, as guest star. She's very funny, and she's going to do a gorgeous ballad. She was a Streisand replacement. In, in fact, she actually went on on Broadway in Funny Girl, too. So she's been out in L.A. for a while. And the 30th is the time to come see it. But it's going to come back. This is just a showcase run to get interest. And, in fact, interesting, this producer is going after a a whole different market. This may very well sit down in New York in a club, but we're bringing in uh, cruise ship people and casino casino people. Because this show, which only runs an hour and 15 in real time, would be perfect for those venues. It's very alcohol-friendly. Yes. <laughs> and gambling-friendly, because they always like shows that last an hour and 15, go back to the tables. <laughs> and Piano Bar would be the kind of thing. And, and it is alcohol-friendly, yes. We, we'll probably get lots of drunks wanting to be in the show. <laughs> which is okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad you guys had a chance to stop by uh, to do this interview on, in fact, your opening night, which yes. is uh, ambitious. <laughs> And Matt has to really perform tonight. I just get to sit there and watch. I also co-directed this piece, so I could sit there and watch and take notes. <laughs> and um, it, it was great to have you guys perform the songs live from the show. It was a blast having you in the studio. I think it's always interesting for the audience to hear the more composer audition side of the number, because other people sing these songs in the show. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Well, I, yeah. well the, the, the opening number, That Don't Bother Floyd, I... I I'm definitely part of that number when I perform as Randy Timmerman, although... But it's uh, a full cast number, too. Yes. And then the other one is performed by David Hibbert, who's much better than me and dances beautifully. <laughs> although you must have done some acting or something at some point, Stephen. Yeah, or or yeah. you just really have a funny bone for it. I'm an, you... I'm an old ham. I've done it before. <laughs> in fact, I'm, I'm about to do play a role in a reading of a new musical I'm doing called The Road to Qatar, which is about myself and another collaborator going to the Middle East and writing a musical. But I'm not playing me, I'm playing my collaborator just to mix it up a little. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I don't often see the composer when they're doing 
their presentation of the song. I don't see them so unabashedly excited. Usually, <laughs> mostly it's like you're like, well, I don't. Want to like that. <laughs> no, Matt's a performer. I'm a performer. <laughs> we have a good time. <laughs> all right. Well, good luck, and definitely, like I said, because our listeners are all over the world. Maybe they'll stumble on a cruise ship and discover Piano Bar and realize they heard it here. And also, <laughs> they can buy Marnie Nixon's book. I could have sung all night because she'll be there, and I wrote that with her. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. Okay. Thanks. I'm with Patrick Page backstage at The Grinch You Stole Christmas. Patrick is playing The Grinch, and at the moment he is getting ready to be putting on his extensive makeup job. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing really well, thanks. Now, first off, I understand that this is quite an extensive makeup getup for you. Yeah, we've been getting the time of it down. When we started, it took about an hour and a half. Well, we've got it down to like 50 minutes now, so... And get the wig on and get the costume and everything. But yeah, it's a lot of makeup. Now, besides The Grinch, I just should let people know, you've played a lot of roles on Broadway, including you've been doing Scar in The Lion King for the past several years. Yeah, speaking of makeup, another time that I spend an hour in the makeup chair before the show. So yeah, I've been doing that for several years, and, and Disney Theatrical's been really kind to me to allow me to go off and do these other things and keep an ongoing relationship with the show, with The Lion King. So they uh, gave me a leave of absence to come do this. They'd given me some time to go do a production of Othello at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C., and before that, a production of Macbeth, and before that, a production of Cyrano de Bergerac. So they've been, you know, really great about that. And you are going back to The Lion King after... I will. I'll go back at the end of January, yeah. So I guess, first off, what is it, the challenges as an actor, since you've done now The Grinch and and Scar, what are the challenges of acting through a heavy makeup job? Well, I I think that's a good question. If you're doing these things where the costume is, number one, changes the shape of your body, and where the makeup is designed to at least give the appearance of changing the shape of your face, you are essentially changing where you express things. And so a lot of your expression is you find different places to articulate. With the Grinch, he articulates with fingers and with hips because those are angles that you can express a lot with those things. You know, Scar has this mask on the top of his head and with different tilts of the head, things like that, you can express an enormous amount. So, you know... Every character is sort of centered in a different place. If you're playing Iago, then you don't have those particular challenges. Then, you know, you're building the physical life of a man who's a a soldier and who's very controlled and contained with his body, very controlled with his uh, expression facially and vocally, and it's an entirely different thing. So... Yeah, I mean, those that that's what makes it fun. I, I guess it is worth pointing out, too, that you do seem to have a pretty extensive background in doing Shakespeare as well. Yeah, it's kind of what my background has been, and, and really what I love more than anything, because, of course, greatest writer who ever lived. So, What are some of the favorite Shakespearean roles you've played? Well, I did really love doing Iago just recently. I played it once before, probably about 15 years ago, and I didn't have a good time. Uh, well, you always have a good time playing a part, but didn't... I I didn't feel was successful in my attempt at finding the bottom of the character. Richard III is a great, great character. Hamlet's fabulous, but, you know, a bear. (laughs) Same with Macbeth. Richard II is great. I mean, it's really, really, really hard to... Is is there a particular company that you've worked with on the Shakespeare that you'd like to give just a quick shout-out to? Well, I love working with the Shakespeare Theatre Company in Washington, D.C., which is sort of the main Shakespeare company in the country. It's run by Michael Kahn, who 
was the dean of the Juilliard School for years. So he would, you know, he essentially could train students over time and then bring them to the Shakespeare Theater as completely trained actors, which is wonderful because you have a sense of everybody really having the chops and being out there on stage together, which is very different from when you do a production. For example, I did a production of Julius Caesar on Broadway last year with Denzel Washington, and in, in that case, you have actors coming from a lot of different traditions, which also has its value, but has its challenges. You know, so you have an actor like Eamon Walker, who's coming from television and some very modern types of theater, working right next to Colm Fior, who's coming from the Stratford Festival and is very, very classically oriented. And, and watching those two kind of techniques go up against each other is interesting. I prefer to have people who all sort of have a common language about how they approach that kind of work working together. Yeah, getting back to the Grinch, I'd also say that a lot of your Shakespeare, especially the voice training, shows through <laughs> in, in your creative and wonderful ways that you utilize your voice in yeah. the show. Yeah, well, of course, the Grinch was uh, initially voiced by Boris Karloff, so he kind of put that imprint on it. And it's funny, because you know, when you see characters... Jeremy Irons initially voiced Scar. There are a lot of kind of villain characters like that that really are ultimately drawn from Shakespeare. Scar is obviously drawn from Hamlet, from Claudius in Hamlet, from Richard III, from Macbeth. And the Grinch, you know, it has a lot of those elements of the kind of misanthrope, the sort of Richard III who stands outside the society in The Grinch, you know, not to make too much of it, but that's where it comes from. There w basically, all of our archetypes, or many of them, go back to Shakespeare. Right now, Patrick, you've played a lot of stuff on Broadway, but from what I understand, this is your first time you've actually had a chance to originate a role on Broadway. Is that correct? Um, yeah, a, a starring part, yeah. I mean, I have been in other original casts. I was in the original company of the Kentucky Cycle, and I was in the original company of Julius Caesar, among other things, but this is the first time I've been able to originate a starring part in a musical. Now, with that, usually actors have a lot of leeway when they originate a role, but this is also, at the same time, a show that has a lot of baggage and expectations. So how much leeway were you given with the producers? You know, how many of the wonderful things that you came up with were your own kind of unique creative input? I think pretty much all of it. You know, they're... I think they hire an actor, and they want that actor to come in and do what he's going to do. So, and and it's what what's great about originating something is uh, what's great about originating a, uh, a part as opposed to taking over a part is that you you do get to be part of creating those things which then become part of that show. So, a lot of the lines in the show would be ad-libs that I did in rehearsal that then we say, "Oh, that, you know, that works really well. Let's keep that." You know, and it's kind of, it's fun to know that those lines will stay in the show when other actors do it in the future. Now, I think there's been a misconception in the press of people thinking that this may be more along the lines of Lion King or Beauty and the Beast, where it's a musical for kids and adults, but maybe aimed more towards adults. Whereas I understand that you feel, and the producers really feel, this is actually a musical for children. Well, I've always felt it was, you know, for children. I, I don't know what the producers <laughs> feel. But I've always thought that, and when I, I did Beauty and the Beast for five years, I played Lumiere and, and Lion King. And in those cases, I mean, there's a love story in Beauty and the Beast 
that's really not something a four-year-old they get something else in the show. But the idea of romantic love or of sacrificing yourself for rom- romantic love and stuff is, is not something that a, a four- or five-year-old is really getting. That plot is for the adults. And with Lion King, of course, Julie Taymor did an aesthetic on the show that's very much for adults. In the case of The Grinch, there there isn't a romance story. There isn't a deepening of relationships, you know, with Max and The Grinch. That's not what it's about. It's about this very simple, beautiful story that was written by Dr. Seuss almost 50 years ago. And he wrote it for children to read. You know, And we, as adults... Because the Grinch is hip and iconoclastic and he hates Christmas, which all of us do at some time. You know, adults love it and everybody loves the cartoon and we all watched it as a kid. And so in that way, that kind of nostalgia for that uh, appeals to adults. And the aesthetic is great. John Lee Beatty's done these sets, which are you know, absolutely faithful to the drawings from the book. And quite impressive, too. I thought technically the the show is very beautiful and colorful. Yeah, I agree. So I, as an adult, in terms of that kind of reminiscence of my childhood, would love to see it. But there's no question in my mind that it is, as a story, geared to children. And I have to say, you know, having done a lot of the children's shows on Broadway or the shows that appeal to children, that there is a more immediate reaction from children with this show because it's it's geared more to them. They realize that. They know this is their show. So yeah, that's that's how I feel about it. I don't know how you know the people who market it feel or anything like that, but I, I just feel like bring your kids, bring them, bring them on. They will you know, I can guarantee your kids will love it. Guarantee. Now, it's been said that there's a rule in, you know, acting to never be in a play with children or animals. <laughs> like, Max is being played by a human, but you've got tons of kids in the show as well. How is that working with so many? Wow. Yeah, there are 26 kids because there are two casts of 13 each. And there's just one cast of adults, obviously. And we do 12 shows a week. So the children, because they're in school, only do sh- six shows a week each. There are two casts. You know, it's wonderful. It's great to work with kids. I work with kids in The Lion King, not so many. Uh, but the little girls I work with in this show who play Cindy Lou Who, they're really little, you know. <laughs> and it's just great. I, mean, I actually thought some of the best scenes that they really fleshed out were the scenes with the Grinch and Cindy Lou Who were really effectively done. I agree with that. In the book, Cindy Lou Who is, you know, she basically comes and surprises the Grinch and goes back to bed. In this, she surprises the Grinch, and then, thinking that he's Santa Claus, tells him that she loves him and that she'll always be there for him no matter what, and whenever he's lonely, he should think about her. And it's that contact. I mean, he's had no contact with any other human being, you know, who or otherwise. And it's that contact with a loving human being that starts to open him up and sets him on his path to where his heart grows three sizes at the end of the show. So I do. I think that Tim Mason really did a a wonderful, wonderful thing with that part of the book. 
and that it's it's so seamless. You don't notice it as being something that's not originally written by Dr. Seuss because it's so much from the spirit of the book. So we've talked about a little bit of your past, the Shakespeare and uh, the Lion King, and we've talked about the Grinch. Do you have anything specific on your plate or things that you're hoping to do? What's your dream role? You know, the dream role question always, uh, I, I listen to other actors try to answer it too, and, and nobody has an adequate answer because I don't think anybody has that one dream part. You're always waiting for, you know, your dream part may be something that isn't written yet, and then there are parts that you would like to do. I, I was so fortunate because in the early part of my career I really got to play most of the things that I really wanted to do like Hamlet and Cyrano and Richard III and Richard II and stuff like that so that if I was able to get my ability to the point where it would equal the role and it's not there yet I'd like to play Sweeney Todd someday and that would just be a great moment for me because it would mean that I had I trained myself to the point where I was equal to the part uh, as I say, I don't think I'm there yet. Where did you study? Well, I first went to a program called Pacific Conservatory Performing Arts, which is in Santa Maria, California. And then I went to Whitman College in Washington State. And then I trained mainly, as we say, OTB on the boards. I spent six seasons with the Utah Shakespeare Festival and three seasons with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and then kind of doing regional theater all over the country before I came to New York. And that was really where I trained mainly by watching actors who are better than me, you know, and going, oh, okay, I get what he's doing, or I get what she's doing, you know, so that was, that was my training. On a closing fun note, your wife's name is Paige. Paige Davis, yes. Now, I imagine that has to be a source of a little bit of fun around your friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, did, she, did she keep Davis for, to avoid being Paige Page? Uh, yeah, well, actually, <laughs> her full name is Mindy Page Davis, and her stage name is Paige Davis and when I met her she was Mindy Page Davis but then she hosted a television show called Trading Spaces for a number of years and while she was doing that show the producers of that show asked her if she would mind going by her middle name and she had always wanted to do that and she said that would be a great idea and I want to the only problem is I'm engaged to a guy whose last name is Page, <laughs> which would mean my name would be Page Page. So I said, honey, you know, I never wanted you to take my last name anyway. So she kept her own name. So now it's just, you know, what it is. But I have yet to meet the person, or if I have, I haven't. I haven't noted it in my mind. Who could resist mentioning it? <laughs> <laughs> and so the Grinch runs through January seventh, and then twelve shows a week. So you know, if you call the box office, there's certain to be a show that will meet your schedule. <laughs> and then people can also catch you back in the Lion King starting when January twenty first. I think I go back in something like that. Certainly by the beginning of February, I'm back in there. A couple weeks vacation to relax. Yeah, hopefully to kind of recover. From thanks. the 12-show schedule. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time in the middle of that hectic uh, schedule to talk with our listeners at Broadway Bullet. I sure appreciate it. We're going to do something a little bit different here. The next artist we're going to play a song from doesn't have anything to do with theater. Gavin McHale is from Tennessee, and we originally discovered him on our music program, Next Big Hit, that we produce. However, I would love it if this guy would write a musical someday. I certainly hope he does. And once you hear this song, I think you'll agree. This is Go On, taken from his CD, Like Normal People Do, which is available from iTunes. Here I stand as 
Listeners may or may not know that I originally hail from Montana, and I actually uh, served a two-year stint DJing at a country bar. So it is with kind of enthusiasm that I am talking with uh, David Kale, the writer 
of Floyd and Clea under the western sky and Mary Faber, who is also acting with him in the show. How are you guys doing? Good, Very thank good, you. thanks. Now, first off, I understand this has a definite Western theme to it. It does, yeah. Floyd is a country singer. There's, there's quite a bit of country music in it. I'll start yeah. off by saying, you know, I, I, I like some country music. I'm not a hardcore country uh, fan, but I've always been surprised that there aren't more country musicals. Uh, because the writing style, you know, the writing ethic of the country lyricists yeah. suits to me so well the concept of a lot of storytelling. Yeah. So I guess what inspired you to start writing this play, Hunting Down? I, I, the composer, I believe, that you worked with hasn't done a lot of other musical theater works. Yeah. It was basically that I, I had played kind of an early version of this character in a film, The Slaughter Rule, and I wanted to wrap a show around him. And that was the initial concept, and then it kind of expanded into, and Clea <laughs> came into the picture. And this was originally commissioned out of... It was commissioned by the Goodman Theatre in Chicago, where I'd done... They'd produced uh, five of my other shows and commissioned two of them. So I I had this kind of long relationship with the Goodman, and and when I finished doing the film, I sort of pitched it to them that I wanted to... And I brought some stills from the movie, which was all shot in Montana, also with me in the... the, um, singing in in, in the movie. So what did you think of Montana while you were there? Well, I, I fell in love with it. I mean, that, that's who I was, I was trying to get back there to do. Th- and there was, like, there was talk of doing some. I almost did another film straight after in Montana. And it was like. In addition to writing the show, as I kind of hinted at, you also are playing one of the two roles in the show. Yeah. I mean, there was a period where I wasn't going to do it. And then we were actually in the auditions. When we were, when we were, when we were looking for Clea, I read with, with a couple of people, and Joe, the director, said, David's got to do it. But I wasn't at that point going to play Floyd. Now, Mary, you're in a two-person musical with yes. with the writer. What's mm. the dynamic like? I imagine you know it's not the same. Even in a lead role in other shows, you know, you're only on stage for a little bit of time. But this is a quite more extensive work, I imagine. Oh yeah, I just got off of um, doing Avenue Q. You know, which is this great like fun ensemble piece and um, to come and work on something like this it's it's a complete turnaround and it's great you know because being able to work so intimately with one other person and thank goodness David and I have really good chemistry yeah. together it's been great I'm learning so much and you're a little bit more of a rocker in the show I understand I am her stuff is, is a little bit got a little bit more of a rock attitude about it. You know, I, I think her influences from her parents, you know, were folk singers, and so that's there, but she definitely has more of a, like, contemporary sensibility about it, you know, like the crossover kind of stuff, Dixie Chicks, like their new album, that kind of thing. But the good thing is, but, like, this music is, for me personally, like, it sits so well. You know, I'm from North Carolina, I have lots of, like, hillbilly roots, and I just, this music feels really good. So it's, it hasn't been as hard as one might think. Well, before we continue, why don't we take a second and listen to one of the songs from okay. your production that you just recorded. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this? Does it need to set up? Floyd is, he's living out of his car. His career is just shot, basically. He's like a severe alcoholic, and he's dying, essentially, in this car in Montana. And Clea comes along, and she, through sheer force of personality, gets him to perform in a high school gym. (laughs) This is what he performs. All my friends are older now Thinking of their lives a different way 
Some dreams have taken hold, other dreams just up and went away. As they settle into lives that may not be just what they had in mind. Everyone seems more aware of how quickly time passes by. Some days I feel reckless, some days I feel scared, some days I feel like looking for a safety net, safety net. Don't have any children Haven't seen my dad in many years Sometimes wonder to myself If he should go, would I shed any tears? Well, I think in this short life We have to simply treasure all we love Nothing is for certain except the grace from up above. Some days I feel reckless, some days I feel scared, some days I feel like looking for a safety net, safety net. many things I want to do and I'm not giving up so easily one road starts at 20 another road begins at 43 it's all one big adventure a gift with no guarantee Sometimes I feel I've got the best, then it gets the best of me. Some days I feel reckless, some days I feel scared, some days I feel like looking for a safety net. As the world gets darker, as the world gets scared Hiding out in places We never knew were there And I'm falling in mid-air Now this is being presented by Playwrights Horizons Yeah right, right. Um, How's it like working with that group? They they're fantastic. Yeah. They're absolutely... I, I, I did another show with, with them before, a solo show, Lillian, uh, a few years ago, and I, I had an incredible experience with that. And because this show is... And, like, kind of like Lillian, it's very... It's really got its heart on its sleeve. And 
I wanted to be in an environment where I would feel completely supported and and kind of safe in a way to to do this. I mean, this show is all heart in a sense, and Lillian was too. And I felt very supported with Lillian. I mean, it was an inc- the environment there is. You really feel I don't like they want you to be there, and, and that there's a passion for what they're presenting. In for I think I think it affects the show. And it did with Lillian. I mean, I felt that they were the, some of the best shows I've ever done, in part because I was stepping into this incredibly supportive, pa- kind of passionate environment. That, and I feel the same with this. I also feel that in recent years, uh, Playwrights Horizon's been very good at picking some real different types of musical theater yeah, works to yeah. develop. And they're definitely on a, on a high right now with I know. Grey Gardens opening on Broadway. I know. No, I, I feel like also they, they, I feel like they get, they just get it. I mean, I've never given anybody the kind of input that certainly people at Playwrights or Joe, the director Joe Calarco is having on this show. I just feel trusting that they know what they're doing and they really feel strongly about the show. And they, there's, a, there's a level of care and kind of love for this show that I'm trusting. If they tell me to take that out or put that in, I'll try it. Willingly, because and also there. I mean, I think Grey Gardens, just the history with Grey Gardens, has so kind of blossomed, and that I mean, they know what they're doing. I, I I just feel like it's really got a lot of love behind it. Where where all the the work on the show is coming from a it's it's just coming from a very kind of emotional place. Is this done kind of pretty traditional staging acting wise, or is it you know a lot of like more of a cinematic film transition? How would you describe the action that you two? work together on stage. It's very it's very cinematic. It's very intimate and sweeping. I don't know, everything sort of overlaps all the scenes. Don't really they don't really stop. They they blend and I mean, I find Montana this dwarfing kind of landscape and the sky does to my eyes does look bigger. I mean, it, the, the big sky state thing. I, I felt like the sky did, I don't know, maybe I'm just used to Manhattan. And, and seeing less sky, but it just seemed much more vast. And I like the idea of these two individuals kind of dwarfed by two little figures on a landscape. They find that they're artistic partners in a sense. Like they just, they, they really connect on that level, on that level of loving music and loving to sing. And When does the show run till? December 17th. Is there any chance of an extension on that? I think they can go for a week or two before the next show has to come in. <laughs> but then it'll be off to Broadway next year like Grey Gardens, so we won't have to worry, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would be very happy if that happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thank the two of you for coming down and having a talk. It's uh, playing, like I said, at Playwrights Horizon through uh, December 17th, and I am excited to see it myself, and I expect that you're having a good time as well from the looks of it. Yes, we yes. are. Thank yes. you. <laughs> thank you. After I finished interviewing them, I found out that not only is Floyd and Clea set in Montana, it's actually set in my hometown of Great Falls, Montana. So I'm very excited to see it. We're moving on. In his 25-plus years in the heart of Broadway at the Colony, Marty Cooper has seen and met just about everything, and he loves just about everything. And that is why we call his weekly segment On the Positive Side. Hey, once again, this is Marty Cooper on the Positive Side. And I've been thinking... Broadway just ain't what it used to be. 
I've been around for many years, and I'll tell you a little story. When, when I went into junior high, and I'm going to date myself, seventh grade was 1956. The number one song on the Billboard charts was a Cole Porter song, True Love, sung by none other than Bing Crosby and Grace Kelly. You remember her? She became Princess Grace. Actually, I'm starting to sound like the guy in a chair in Drowsy Chaperone. You remember her. She became Princess Grace and died in a car accident. In any case, when I was a kid, most of the songs they played on the radio were either country, we were listening to Hank Williams and the like, or pop stars doing country music, Tony Bennett singing Cold, Cold Heart, a Hank Williams song, or it was Broadway. We had Bushel and a Peck on our lips. We had Luck Be a Lady on our lips. It was Broadway songs. Somewhere around 1956, a man named Leonard Bernstein wrote a totally controversial musical based on Romeo and Juliet, West Side Story. And he infused jazz music, and Mr. Jerome Robbins infused jazz dancing into the show. And Broadway changed somewhat. It became a pop venue somewhat. And then, of course, cut 12 years later, and you have Hair, which in my mind is basically your first rock opera. And that introduced rock music into theater. And now it's anything goes, to quote Cole Porter. You either have a traditional musical, I call Les Mis kind of a traditional musical, where people have been singing I Dreamed a Dream for some 21 years, or you have Spring Awakening, which is total rock, as you'll get to know shortly, or you have Rent, which is a total rock musical. Of course, we've been singing uh, Seasons of Love until it's made us ill at this point. Actually, when I first heard that song, I thought it was one of the best songs ever, and now hearing it many times over, a bit tired of it. But it did become somewhat of a hit. People at Colony buy tons of rent sheet music. So I think now it's kind of separated. You have the traditional musical and you have the rock musical and you have the silly musical comedy, which I think songs don't basically come out of. I mean, Spamalot, no one's singing a hit song from Spamalot, and yet you go and have a terrific time. As I said, it ain't what it used to be. I was just talking to Michael before about a show called Most Happy Fella from 1956, and uh, Frank Lesser wrote that. It was the first Broadway cast recording that was presented like an opera. It came in a box set with three records, and it was the entire score. But even out of that, you had a song like Standing on the Corner, the pop version recorded by a group called The Four Lads, which none of you have ever heard of, I'm pretty sure. And he was saying that that probably changed the musical in a way. It was probably a, a turning point because it did present opera and your pop songs. I just, I'm just longing for some of that time when Broadway was Broadway and popular music was popular music. And at times, Broadway music became popular music. It doesn't happen anymore. And I kind of miss it, even though we're not living through a really bad time on Broadway. But we need to do away with, I think, in my mind, except for maybe Mamma Mia, which I enjoy thoroughly, and I've seen it a few times. It created a kind of monster in the jukebox musical. And I think we need to be a little more creative and get Broadway back to Broadway. One show comes to my mind, Hairspray, which in my mind has a lot of hit-worthy songs and no one listens to those outside of the show. Without Love, for instance, it's a great song. Good Morning Baltimore would be a hit in the 60s. It would be hit by maybe the Ronettes or the Crystals or somebody like that. Another song, You Can't Stop the Beat, you just go out, jump into that song. You leave the theater, jump into that song. I think back in maybe the early 60s, you'd have top 10 hits. I must say one thing. I know I'm rambling, 
in the present day with what kids listen to now, what kids who are buying records listen to now, they would never think about songs coming out of a Broadway show. So basically, and when I was a kid, we had a TV show like Ed Sullivan, which invited Broadway shows to perform their big numbers. We have no venues anymore. So the expression is, as quoting Lacajo Fall or a few other people, what's on Broadway stays on Broadway. And that's really a shame. Until next week, this is Marty Cooper on The Positive Side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony. In New York at 49th and Broadway or online at colonymusic.com, you can always say, I found it at The Colony. We're going to hear a song from a show in development. Wanda's World is a new tween musical that is being developed partly in association with Amas Musicals. The book is by Eric H. Weinberger, and music and lyrics are by Beth Falcone. And on November 27th, selections from Wanda's World will be performed in Bound for Broadway in Merkin Hall at Lincoln Center. Here's a taste with She's So Last Week from Wanda's World. Wanda, come over here with me. You can sit with us. Really? Sure, you know, like the principal said, we need to take newcomers under our wings. Get to know you better. I brought some snacks. Would you like some? Sure. So what's your deal, Wanda? Tell us, what are you about? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. Like, what do you want to know? Like, where did you come from, Wanda? Where do you like to hang out? Well, my mom and I moved here from Granville just a few weeks ago, so what I What music do you download, Wanda? Prom Boys and Sister Chic. That's what you got on your iPod, Wanda. Ew. That's so last week. She's so last week. She's so last She's week. so last week. Uh-huh. What boys have you noticed, Wanda? You can tell me. Who do you think's hot? Uh, no one that I see right now. What about PJ Wanda? I heard he might like you. What? Yeah, but listen. Maybe I can help somehow, like, you need another outfit, Wanda. Those shoes? They're LA gear. That's all you got in your closet, Wanda. Ew. That's so last year. She's so last year. She's so last year. Last year. Uh-huh. He's coming. Who? Well? Never mind, it was a false alarm. <sighs> what else are you into, Wanda? Tell us, do you surf the net for fun? Sometimes, but I really like to watch TV. That sounds a little boring, Wanda. Oh, but it's not. Like, I like to see how it's done. I was thinking of working on Cheese Valley News, School Channel 23. I hope you mean in the background, Wanda. Something like a computer geek, because not exactly photogenic, Wanda. Whoa. Maybe you should be behind the camera. She's such a freak. She's such not a that you freak. can help it. Wanda I'm sure you don't want to look Wanda's like that. Wanda's a freak. Wanda's a freak. Ah! Oh my gosh, she's really coming. Hey, Ty. Hey, Jenny. Hey, Ty. Hey, Ty. So, what'd you do this summer? Yeah, did you get to go someplace cool? Nah, my parents flew us to London, but we do that almost every year. Did you stay at your grandpa's mansion? You know, the one with the shamrock pool. Yeah, but the leaf thing cracked, so we hung out on his boat. Down a tower pier, but I got to visit my brother at Princeton. And I got to stay in the dorm. That's weird. Yeah, I got to go to a way cool party. Whoa. That's wicked fierce. That's wicked fierce. 
Sorry. What a spaz. Yeah, it's gonna be an awesome yeah. Find more information about Wanda's World at www.wandasworld.tv. We've talked about Ars Nova a lot in this program, so it should be no surprise that they have a lot of different things going on. And there is a show that is quite hard to describe, though I'm sure Billy Eichner, who is here with us, will be able to. Creation Nation is a bit of everything, and it takes place on the last Thursday of every month. You have an opportunity to catch their last performance for 2006 on November 30th. We're going to talk a little bit about the show. How are you doing, Billy? I'm great. How are you? Oh, good. It's crazy getting ready for Thanksgiving here. It is. It's crazy for, for everyone at Creation Nation, too, because we have this holiday coming right in the middle of our usual rehearsal schedule. So I guess, first off, describe what people can expect coming to see Creation Nation. Creation Nation is uh, it's really this unique comedy show that takes aspects of sort of an old-fashioned variety show, but also sketch comedy like Saturday Night Live. Some people compare it to The Daily Show, but there are many musical elements to it. We have production numbers, songs, but then we also have a celebrity guest that, you know, the way you might find on Conan O'Brien or, or Letterman that we take from, like, the TV worlds or from the theater worlds here in New York, and they come on stage and we chat with them for five and ten minutes. And at the same time, I host the show as sort of an alter ego, whose name is Billy Willing, and I have a sidekick, Robin Lord, another guy who hosts it with me, who's sort of like this... Takes sort of the Ed McMahon position, but it's a very contemporary take on that sidekick. He's young, and he sort of has this skater boy, frat boy mentality, as opposed to my more over-the-top flamboyant theatrical persona that I take on and we have sort of an ambiguous relationship that sort of runs through the sketches and the interviews and the song so it's sort of crazy and funny and different so that's what it is in a nutshell in a very elaborate nutshell well now how long has Creation Nation been running we first started doing it in September of 2003 uh, although at the time we weren't doing it every month, we really just started doing it as a fun show for our friends to come see. It was very theater-oriented about the theater world, but uh, people really liked it. So we kept doing it. Eventually we started doing it every month. There have been seasons when we do it every week, and we've gone to comedy festivals and done it there, and we've done benefits all over town. But the show is much different now than when it was when it started. It really takes on the whole world now, politically speaking and pop culture and Hollywood and just, like, everyday lives instead of just this, like, insider theater joke, which is really what it started out being, but now it's much different. So what kind of inspired you? I'm assuming you'd act in other projects as well. And yeah, I, started, I was an actor, and Robin was an actor, and uh, we went to Northwestern, and we met, uh, we were friends there. It started because we were just, like, you know, struggling actors sitting around, and we were roommates, too, who lived together for years, just as friends. But um, <laughs> Is this part of the ambiguous relationship that yes, you have in the show? Yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> so it was, in, I mean, we just started doing it because although we were really good friends and we were both somewhat talented people, we never really worked together before very much. And then we ended up doing this one off, 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 off Broadway show together where I actually played his sidekick, but we had a really funny chemistry and we had a lot of fun. So we said we should do something together. And we were also big fans of talk shows, like morning talk shows. We just had this weird affinity for, like, Regis and Kelly and, like, The View and all this, like, live morning Hollywoody 
programming that happened. We thought, what if we did our own sort of twisted take on that with more of like a theatrical sensibility? If that makes any sense. Is this a kind of typical audience sits and watches politely, or is this a little bit more boisterous than that? Well, they laugh a lot, which is good, but there's, there isn't much audience participation. I mean, we do it at Ars Nova. Ars Nova is somewhere between a cabaret space and a theater space. But it also there's also a lot of sketch comedy that goes on there and a lot of improv. So our audience is made up of a lot of different types of theater-going people. Some of them might be more prone to going to the Upright Citizens Brigade to see improv, but we also have like a lot of like musical theater queens that come and check us out, like a slightly older crowd, and they all just sit there together. And sometimes people will yell something out, but it's not... We don't really ask for lots of audience participation. There is sort of an arc to the show, and it is somewhere between the theater and comedy world. It's not a regular comedy improv show where you, we, we get suggestions from the audience and things. It's, it's more theatrical and more contained than that. And now they have this last Thursday, November 30th, to yes. catch the show at yes. 10 p.m., you said. Yes. And you said the show will probably be coming back as well sometime in 2007? Yeah, we have one more show this year. It's our final show of the year. Joan Rivers is on the show. Joan is confirmed to be our our guest that night, so that'll be really fun. And then, yeah, then we will be back in 2007. And we're actually, this next show on the 30th, we're taping with, like, a multi-camera format. We're going to create, like, a live DVD of the show. So this show is also going to have, like, a lot of greatest hits. So especially, I mean, I think a lot of our fan base is going to come and check it out because it's Joan, and that'll be its own fun, weird thing. But if you've never seen the show, this is a great opportunity to see it because it's sort of like a greatest hits mishmash of like all the greatest hits of, of like sketches and songs and videos that we've done since the beginning of this year, sort of to wrap it all up. So, And then, yeah, then we'll be back in 2007 at some point early next year. And have you met Joan before this? I have. I sh- just shot a pilot with Joan Rivers at Bravo for a talk show that she would be hosting, which is sort of like a gayer version of The View. And it was like me and Joan Rivers and Jim McGreevy, the former governor of New Jersey, and some other guys on this panel with Joan. And I'm not sure. We're still waiting to hear if the pilot's getting picked up. So I have no idea. But Joan and I got along really well. And she came to Creation Nation last month just to check it out. And she said she would do the show for our final show of the year. So... Yeah, Joan's awesome. She's really cool. We didn't have much time to get this interview scheduled to be able to get it placed in the show before your final performance. Yes. But uh, So we weren't able to coordinate getting your musician in here. But No, we were not. When you start up again next year, I would love it if you guys would come back into the studio and, and give us a musical taste of the show as absolutely, well. Absolutely, absolutely. That would be fun. All right, so November 30th, Creation Nation. That's right. All right, thanks for coming in, Billy. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm President George W. Bush, and I approve this message. Next week, on Volume 16, myself and my friends, the Billionaires for Bush, will be on Broadway Bullet doing some sort of a podcast, some sort of alien technologies, as I understand it. Download it on your internets, on your computers. We'll be at the Ace of Clubs doing our show, Dick Cheney's Holiday Spectacular 2006. Don't forget your bulletproof jacket. Season's greetings from, from the Billionaires, Billionaires for Bush. Bush. We're going to let you hear a song from the new musical, Gauguin Savage Light, which is currently playing at the Abingdon Theater here in New York. We had a great interview with George Fishoff in Volume 11, and we played two other songs from the show as well. So if you're intrigued, be sure you check out that episode for more. 
Right now, here's the song Ridiculous from Gauguin, Savage Light. Have you ever seen anything like that? That cow over there, it looks more like a rat. Those ugly little dogs, each one looks like a cat. Have you ever seen anything like that? Oh, it's ridiculous, it's ridiculous. These paintings are so bad, they're even funny. It's ridiculous, it's ridiculous. Who would want to buy them? Save your money. Doesn't all this seem very strange to you? Have you ever seen an angel dressed in blue? It's not only bad, but it's sacrilegious too. Doesn't all this seem very strange to you? Oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This foolish artist shouldn't even try. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Who would want to own them? Not I. Art should be pretty. Art should be smart. Art should be beautiful. Art should be art. Someone, will you please help me find the door? Looking at these yellow wings makes my eyes sore. Art as bad as this should be banned forevermore. Darling, will you please help me find the door? Oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. If I've ever seen worse, I can't recall. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I don't know why I came at all. We've got this week's theater news from the BroadwayWorld.com news desk. If you'd like more information on any of these stories or a lot more, visit BroadwayWorld.com. To start off, we got the Pirate Queen. Tony Award winner Richard Maltby Jr. and multi-Tony Award nominee Graciela Danielle have signed on to the creative team of the Broadway-bound musical The Pirate Queen. Joining previously announced director Frank Gallaty, Maltby Jr. will work with composing team Alain Boblil and Claude Michael Schoenberg, while Danielle will oversee musical staging. In addition, previews for The Pirate Queen have been moved back to March 6th. The original show was set to begin March 2nd. Next, according to the New York Post's Michael Rydell, Jersey Boys, the 2006 Tony Award winner for Best Musical, might be headed for the big screen. Although Harvey Weinstein, Tom Hanks, and executives from Disney and Warner Brothers are all reportedly interested in the property, Rydell writes that the multi-Oscar winner Steven Spielberg is the producer most likely to succeed at bringing Jersey Boys to cinema. I'm sure this will be a long and continuing story. Stay tuned. In other news, a show we featured before from the New York Musical Theater Festival, Gutenberg the Musical, will begin previews at 59 East 59th Theaters on November 21st for a strictly off-Broadway engagement through December 31st. It will open officially on December 3rd. You can hear our interview with the actors and the writer on Broadway Bullet Volume 5. Were you a fan of the TV show Who's the Boss in the 80s? Because TV, theater, and cabaret star Tony Danza may be returning to Broadway this winter to star as Max Bialystok in The Producers. 
Danza has appeared on Broadway in The Iceman Cometh and A View from the Bridge, as well as Johnny Boy at The Falcon. And here, this last one, uh, for me, this is a little bit of a groaner, but I don't know how everybody else feels. Don Johnson will make his West End debut as Nathan Detroit in the hit London revival of Guys and Dolls. He will join the production in January of 2007. Fellow movie star Patrick Swayze departs the show on November 25th. Again, that was some of the news from the BroadwayWorld.com news desk. You can visit BroadwayWorld.com for more information. Well, that wraps up this episode of Broadway Bullet, Volume 15. But like I said, we got some great stuff ahead. We're going to get geeky with the great new Broadway musical Spring Awakening with some in-depth coverage beginning of Volume 17. Next week, we have the Queen of Cabaret, Andrea Marcovici. And we've also got a few holiday-themed shows if you're looking to find some great stuff to celebrate the holiday season. We're also going to be talking very soon with three-time Tony nominee, two-time winner, Steven Spinella, not just about Spring Awakening, but also the rest of his remarkable career. We also have a new way of listening to Broadway Bullet. If you've been trying to tell your friends about it, but they just can't grasp the podcasting thing, you can now dial and listen from any phone. If you just dial 1-213-514-5315, you'll get Broadway Bullet on your phones. Regular long-distance charges will apply, but for many people with their cell phones and unlimited long-distance calling on nights and weekends, that could be a great time to check it out. It's also pretty convenient because it allows you to use the pound and star sign to skip back and forth in minute intervals through the episode. So it's another great way to let people know how to get in touch and hear Broadway Bullet. Again, that phone number is 1213-514-5315. Well, we're going to have a jam-packed episode next week, that is for sure. And until then, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.